the source of the speeches I use here on the Choice Voice podcast comes from a list of the top 100 speeches as compiled by researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Texas A&M University, among other places. It reflects the opinions of more than 100 leading scholars of public address. My choice of speeches should not be construed to reflect or promote any point of view. They are simply considered great speeches. Of course, the reason you listen to a choice voice varies from an interest in the subject matter and what you might do with it to a general appreciation of a great voice ready to read your commercials, audiobooks, or other voice acting projects, you can ask for more information in the A Choice Voice subreddit on, you guessed it, Reddit. And that, of course, is linked in the show notes. And now, Mahatma Mohandas Gandhi. Welcome, friends, to this reading of Mohandas Gandhi, often referred to as Mahatma Gandhi, his speech early in the 1900s at Benares Hindu University. I wish to tender my humble apology for the long delay that took place before I was able to reach this place, and you will readily accept the apology when I tell you that I am not responsible for the delay, nor is any human agency responsible for it. The fact is that I am like an animal on show, and my keepers in their over-kindness always manage to neglect a necessary chapter in this life, and that is pure accident. In this case, they did not provide for the series of accidents that happened to us, to me, keepers, and my carriers, hence this delay. Friends, under the influence of the matchless eloquence of Mrs. Bissant, who has just sat down, pray do not believe that our university has become a finished product and that all the young men who are come to the university that has yet to rise and come into existence have also come and returned from it finished citizens of a great empire. Do not go away with any such impression. And if you, the student world to which my remarks are supposed to be addressed this evening, consider for one moment that the spiritual life for which this country is noted and for which this country has no rival can be transmitted through the lip, pray believe me, you are wrong. You will never be able merely through the lip to give the message that India, I hope, will one day deliver to the world. I myself have been fed up with speeches and lectures. I accept the lectures that have been delivered here over the last two days from this category because they are necessary. But I do venture to suggest to you that we have now reached almost the end of our resources in speech making. It is not enough that our ears are feasted, that our eyes are feasted, but it is necessary that our hearts have got to be touched and that our hands and feet have got to be moved. We have been told during the last two days how necessary it is, if we are to retain our hold upon the simplicity of Indian character, that our hands and feet should move in unison with our hearts. But this is only by way of preface. I wanted to say it is a matter of deep humiliation and shame for us that I am compelled this evening under the shadow of this great college in this sacred city to address my countrymen in a language that is foreign to me. I know that if I was appointed an examiner to examine all those who have been attending during these two days the series of lectures, most of those who might be examined upon these lectures would fail. And why? Because they have not been touched. 
I was present at the sessions of the Great Congress in the month of December. There was a much vaster audience, and will you believe me when I tell you that the only speeches that touched the huge audience in Bombay were the speeches that were delivered in Hindustani? In Bombay, mind you, not in Benares where everyone speaks Hindi, but between the vernaculars of the Bombay presidency on the one hand and Hindu on the other, no such great dividing line exists as there does between English and the sister language of India, and the Congress audience was better able to follow the speakers in Hindi. I am hoping that this university will see to it that the youths who come to it will receive their instruction through the medium of their vernaculars. Our language is the reflection of ourselves. And if you tell me that our languages are too poor to express the best thought, then say that the sooner we are wiped out of existence, the better for us. Is there a man who dreams that English can ever become the national language of India? Why this handicap on the nation? Just consider for one moment what an equal race our lads have to run with every English lad. I had the privilege of a close conversation with some Pune professors. They assured me that every Indian youth, because he reached his knowledge through the English language, lost at least six precious years of life. Multiply that by the numbers of students turned out by our schools and colleges and find out for yourselves how many thousand years have been lost to the nation. The charge against us is that we have no initiative. How can we have any if we are to devote the precious years of our life to the mastery of a foreign tongue? We fail in this attempt also. Was it possible for any speaker yesterday and today to impress his audience as was possible for Mr. Higginbotham? It was not the fault of the previous speakers that they could not engage the audience. They had more than substance enough for us in their addresses, but their addresses could not go home to us. I have heard it said that, after all, it is English-educated India which is leading and which is doing all the things for the nation. It would be monstrous if it were otherwise. The only education we receive is English education. Surely, we must show something for it. But suppose we had been receiving during the past 50 years education through our vernaculars. What should we have today? We should have today a free India. We should have our educated men, not as if they were foreigners in their own land, but speaking to the heart of the nation. They would be working amongst the poorest of the poor, and whatever they would have gained during these 50 years would be a heritage for the nation. Today, even our wives are not the sharers in our best thought. Look at Professor Bose and Professor Ray and their brilliant researches. Is it not a shame that their researches are not the common property of the masses? Let us now turn to another subject. The Congress has passed a resolution about self-government, and I have no doubt that the All India Congress Committee and the Muslim League will do their duty and come forward with some tangible suggestions. But I, for one, must frankly confess that I am not so much interested in what they will be able to produce as I am interested in anything that the student world is going to produce or the masses are going to produce. No paper contribution will ever give us self-government. No amount of speeches will ever make us fit for self-government. It is only our conduct that will fit for us it, and how are we trying to govern ourselves? I want to think audibly this evening. I do not want to make a speech. And if you find me this evening speaking without reserve, 
pray consider that you are only sharing the thoughts of a man who allows himself to think audibly. And if you think that I seem to transgress the limits that courtesy imposes upon me, pardon me for the liberty I may be taken. I visited the Vishwanath temple last evening, and as I was walking through those lanes, these were the thoughts that touched me. If a stranger dropped from above onto this great temple and he had to consider what we as Hindus were, would he not be justified in condemning us? Is not this great temple a reflection of our own character? I speak feelingly as a Hindu. Is it right that the lanes of our sacred temple should be as dirty as they are? The houses round about are built anyhow. The lanes are torturous and narrow. If even our temples are not models of roominess and cleanliness, what can our self-government be? Shall our temples be abodes of holiness, cleanliness, and peace soon as the English have retired from India, either of their own pleasure or by compulsion bag and baggage? I entirely agree with the President of the Congress that before we think of self-government, we shall have to do the necessary plotting. In every city, there are two divisions, the cantonment and the city proper. The city mostly is a stinking den, but we are a people unused to city life. But if we want city life, we cannot reproduce the easy-going Hamlet life. It is not comforting to think that people walk about the streets of Indian Bombay under the perpetual fear of dwellers in the storied buildings spitting upon them. I do a great deal of railway traveling. I observe the difficulty of third-class passengers, but the railway administration is by no means to blame for all their hard lot. We do not know the elementary laws of cleanliness. We spit anywhere on the carriage floor, irrespective of the thoughts that it is often used as sleeping space. We do not trouble ourselves as to how we use it. The result is indescribable filth in the compartment. The so-called better-class passengers overawe their less fortunate brethren. Among them I have seen the student world also. Sometimes they behave no better. They can speak English, and they have worn Norfolk jackets, and therefore claim the right to force their way in and command seating accommodation. We'll continue with this speech right after this quick break. Hello, hello, friends. This is a quick break, which I'm putting in the middle of this great speech. For all you advertisers out there, this is where your message goes. I'm talking about that message you have so lovingly crafted to tell the story of your thing, your magnificent thing, the thing none of us will ever need to live without ever again. This is your chance. Jump on it. Feel free to turn it down a bit there, John. Yeah, what he said. Oh, right. Note to self, don't get so worked up, John. For listeners, please pay attention to that when it comes. For now, breathe deeply, give yourself an epic massage, and just enjoy everything. Really, everything. <sighs> now back to where we left off. I have turned the searchlight all over, and as you have given me the privilege of speaking to you, I am laying my heart bare. Surely, we must set these things right in our progress towards self-government. I now introduce you to another scene. His Highness the Maharaja, who presided yesterday over our deliberations, spoke about the poverty of India. Other speakers laid great stress upon it, but what did we witness in the great Pandal in which the foundation ceremony was performed by the Viceroy? 
certainly a most gorgeous show, an exhibition of jewelry, which made a splendid feast for the eyes of the greatest jeweler who chose to come from Paris. I compare with the richly bedecked noblemen the millions of the poor, and I feel like saying to these noblemen, there is no salvation for India unless you strip yourselves of this jewelry and hold it in trust for your countrymen in India. I am sure it is not the desire of the King Emperor or the Lord Harding that, in order to show the truest loyalty to our King Emperor, it is necessary for us to ransack our jewelry boxes and to appear bedecked from top to toe. I would undertake at the peril of my life to bring to you a message from King George himself that he accepts nothing of the kind. Sir, whenever I hear of a great palace rising in any great city of India, be it in British India or be it in India, which is ruled by our great chiefs, I become jealous at once and say, oh, it is the money that has come from the agriculturists. Over 75% of the population are agriculturists. And Mr. Higginbotham told us last night in his own felicitous language that they are the men who grow two blades of grass in the place of one. But there cannot be much spirit of self-government about us if we take away or allow others to take away from them almost the whole of the results of their labor. Our salvation can only come through the farmer. Neither the lawyers, nor the doctors, nor the rich landlords are going to secure it. Now, last but not least, it is my bounden duty to refer to what agitated our minds during these two or three days. All of us have had many anxious moments while the Viceroy was going through the streets of Benares. There were detectives stationed in many places. We were horrified. We asked ourselves, why this distrust? Is it not better that even Lord Harding should die than live a living death? But a representative of a mighty sovereign may not. He may find it necessary to impose these detectives on us. We may foam, we may fret, we may resent, but let us not forget that India of today in her impatience has produced an army of anarchists. I myself am an anarchist, but of another type. But there is a class of anarchists among us, and if I was able to reach this class, I would say to them that their anarchism has no room in India. If India is to conquer, it is a sign of fear. If we trust and fear God, we shall have to fear no one. Not the Maharajas, not the Viceroys, not the Detectives, not even King George. I honor the anarchist for his love of the country. I honor him for his bravery in being willing to die for his country. But I ask him, is killing honorable? Is the dagger of an assassin a fit precursor of an honorable death? I deny it. There is no warrant for such methods in any scriptures. If I found it necessary for the salvation of India that the English should retire, that they should be driven out, I would not hesitate to declare that they would have to go. And I hope I would be prepared to die in defense of that belief. That would, in my opinion, be an honorable death. The bomb thrower creates secret plots, is afraid to come out into the open, and when caught, pays the penalty of misdirected zeal. I have been told, had we not done this, had some people not thrown bombs, we should never have gained what we have got with reference to the partition movement. Please stop it. This is what I said in Bengal when Mr. Lyon presided at the meeting. I think what I am saying is necessary. If I am told to stop, I shall obey. I await your orders. If you consider that by my speaking as I am, I am not serving the country and the empire, I shall certainly stop. Please, explain your object. I am simply... My friends, 
Please do not resent this interruption. If Mrs. Besant this evening suggests that I should stop, she does so because she loves India so well, and she considers that I am erring in thinking audibly before you young men. But even so, I simply say this, that I want to purge India of this atmosphere of suspicion on either side. If we are to reach our goal, we should have an empire which is to be based upon mutual love and mutual trust. Is it not better that we talk under the shadow of this college than that we should be talking irresponsibly in our homes? I consider that it is much better that we talk these things openly. I have done so with excellent results before now. I know that there is nothing that the students do not know. I am, therefore, turning the searchlight towards ourselves. I hold the name of my country so dear to me that I exchange these thoughts with you and submit to you that there is no room for anarchism in India. Let us frankly and openly say whatever we want to say to our rulers and face the consequences if what we have to say does not please them. But let us not abuse. I was talking the other day to a member of the much-abused civil service. I have not very much in common with the members of that service, but I could not help admiring the manner in which he was speaking to me. He said, Mr. Gandhi, do you for one moment suppose that all we civil servants are a bad lot, that we want to oppress the people whom we have come to govern? No, I said. Then, if you get an opportunity, put in a word for the much-abused civil service. And I am here to put in that word. Yes, many members of the Indian civil service are most decidedly overbearing. They are tyrannical, at times thoughtless. Many other adjectives may be used. I grant all these things. And I grant also that after having lived in India for a certain number of years, some of them become somewhat degraded. But what does that signify? They were gentlemen before they came here, and if they have lost some of the moral fiber, it is a reflection upon ourselves. Just think out for yourselves. If a man who was good yesterday has become bad after having come in contact with me, is he responsible that he has deteriorated, or am I? The atmosphere of sycophancy and falsity that surrounds them on their coming to India demoralizes them as it would many of us. It is well to take the blame sometimes. If we are to receive self-government, we shall have to take it. We shall never be granted self-government. Look at the history of the British Empire and the British nation. Freedom-loving as it is, it will not be a party to give freedom to a people who will not take it themselves. Learn your lesson, if you wish, from the Boer War. Those who were enemies of that empire only a few years ago have now become friends. Gandhi was interrupted and not able to finish his speech. Who would have thought that Gandhi was ever unpopular? History does some interesting things. Next week, we hear a quote-unquote secret speech made by Nikita Khrushchev. Obviously it isn't a secret anymore, but try saying that at the time. Join us. This podcast and our other podcast are productions of Little Red Hen Industries. The supporting cast who helps me bake the bread includes 
Techno King, John C. Brandy, Alter Ego, Doubting Thomas, Fact Checker, A Small Brown Beef Animal, Seriously, Tiny. Facts are important but are also easy. Social Manager, Abraham Lincoln, Media Expert, Augustus Caesar. Psychologist, William James, Sound Designer, Adobe's Creative Suite, Spanish Consultant, Cameron J.K. Brandy. French Consultant, Leah, The Do Your Own Research Lady, Videographer, Eto Monkoshki, Audio Props, Les Paul. Inspiration, many podcasts and other sources and of course Napoleon Hill. We also have websites, and you can subscribe to both podcasts. You can even send us a video, audio, or text message. But, of course, you'll have to head to the show notes, either on your phone or on the web, to get the links and stuff. And all those clickable links are in the show notes. And before we forget, the artificial intelligence or AI voices that you hear in our work are offered up by Google, Amazon Polly, and OpenAI like we say in the show notes. They don't sponsor us yet, but we love what they do, and we just love what AI can do when lovingly crafted. Finally, you can find us on Prodmatch.com, Matchmaker.fm, Podbooker, and Podcast Guests, where we consider guests and consider guesting on other people's shows. And really, finally, the music for our pods comes from Cute by Ben Sound and from Piano Background by Nick Simon Adams, as well as from AI MuseNet. The sound effect credits go to Jackson Academy Ashmore, Canusie G, Doctor Jekyll. Joe Payne, Everything Sounds, MK Play More Stories, ERH, Sand Emotions, Big Pickle 51, and Just Kidding, yes that's his or her name, all on freesound.org. Also, languages are the bomb. Paul.